Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay is joined by Tamisha A. Tyler. Tamisha is one of the co-executive directors of ARC, which stands for Arts, Religion, and Culture, a creative collaborative for Theopoetics. She's also a PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary, studying theology and culture with a minor in ethics. Tamisha was born and raised in Long Beach, California, but currently resides in Pasadena. Her interests include exploring a theopoetic disposition for ethical concerns and engaging the intersection of theology, ethics, and culture through the work of Octavia Butler. She also works with several arts organizations and projects, including Listen Los Angeles, a listening project featuring an all-African-American cast reflecting on the current state of the country through art. She also hosts a podcast entitled Why We're Friends, and we're happy to welcome her as a new friend of this podcast. Tamisha, it's, it's really great to have you today, and I've admired you from a distance for quite a while now, oh. because I watch you interview people for, for ARC, about which you'll say more later. I've gotten to talk to you on the phone uh, one time, but it was such a stimulating conversation about so many things. I know you're a poet, I know you're creative, I know you've got a really good heart, I studied your website, um, and I know that you're, you're about to receive your PhD, and I know you love Octavia Butler. Yes. So let's talk about all those things, but first things first, um, uh, how did you become you? you? And, and tell us a little bit about your spiritual background, uh, how it got started. We'd love to yeah. hear about you. It all started in uh, the summer of 1982. I'm kidding. No, I'm actually not kidding. That's where my spiritual journey actually started. Um, I learned spirituality from my mother. My mother always started by telling a story about her, uh, a very poignant spiritual encounter for her. She grew up, I don't know if she necessarily grew up in the church, but she was attending church before she gave birth to me, she was pregnant to me. She was attending a, um, a Pentecostal church and was at a revival. And at that revival, she received the gift of the, uh, the Holy Spirit, the bapti baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues while she was pregnant with me. And the revivalist gave her a prophetic word and gave me a prophetic word in the womb. And so I always grew up with this story and I was always told that the revivalist said to me that the words, knowledge and wisdom, all the days of her life was written across my forehead. That was the word that he had given um, to my mother, to me in the womb. And so that story really shaped my spirituality growing up. I would always watch my mom, you know, have us get up at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> uh, to clean and to sing gospel songs. Um, I listened to her pray. I heard her stories of her own um, encounters with God. And so that shaped 
um, a lot of my questions about God, a lot of my conversations with God. I didn't grow up in church. My mom had stopped attending church by the time I was born. And so I would go to church in spurts as a kid with, you know, the neighbor for a period of time or with my friends, you know, for a month at a time. And then I would not go for years and years. And so when I graduated high school, went to college is when I started going to church consistently. And I had a really good foundation, though, of who I was because of my mom. So it was really it was really a learning curve for me going into organized church spaces, especially as a woman, because there were spaces that weren't very um, open and welcoming and hospitable to me and my leadership um, as a woman. When I grew up with my mom saying, you literally can do whatever you want. Um, if there are any questions you have, you go all the way to the top. If it takes you to the White House, so be it. But you keep asking your questions. And so there was no boundaries or limitations to who I could be or what I could do. But it was grounded in spirituality. It was grounded in Jesus. It was grounded in God. And so I had to find my own way at that point. But I always got a call from my mom. I still get lecture calls from my mom. <laughs> She will call me and ask me how I'm doing. And then she'll say, you know how much favor you have? You should be using it and don't be afraid. Like, that's the lecture that I get. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yes, mom. Yep, I understand. Yes, mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, still keeps me grounded just in that way. And so I think that, you know, the, the spirituality and the traditions we inherit from our parents um, should not be underestimated. Because even in the hardest times, it has grounded me even still now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your church experience and what was that like? What, how, what was the worship like? Was it Pentecostal? Um, it, was, it, was, it was gospel. It was a black gospel church experience. Um, the congregation was predominantly African-American. Um, but I, it was, you know, choirs, sang in the choir, directed a choir for a bit, started a youth choir. Um, gospel music. Um, moving into other church settings was um, mostly gospel, but a little bit of CCM. Um, my last church that I attended was gospel, CCM. We did multiple languages. It was a multi It's a multicultural church in Los Angeles. So um, we engage in a lot of different, but it was mostly, um, they're trying to strike the balance between gospel music, CCM music, and um, traditional hymns, mm -hmm. and then weave into various languages into that. So it was a very great experience, and I, um, at all of those church experiences, I served as a worship leader. Mm. So got to learn a lot just being in that space. So music was important. Mm -hmm. um, the Bible was important. Community was important. Yes. Jesus was important. Yes. Uh, was Jesus kind of wrapped up in, in, in it all? Or uh, can you tell me a little bit about who was Jesus for you? And then a little later, who is Jesus for you? Can you say a word about that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting who was Jesus for me. Jesus was always the... Uh, <laughs> as a kid, the right answer to everything. Uh -huh. So in Sunday school, if you didn't know the answer, if you said Jesus, you were probably kind of right. <laughs> so I was 
would just always be like, uh, Jesus? <laughs> like, that was the answer to, like, everything. Um, I think growing up, though, um, I, I wanted to, I was very interested in theology early on and was initially discouraged because I was a woman. But I wanted to, like, you know, find a theology book and try to read it until I understood it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so Jesus became, you know, the name you called, you know, the blood of Jesus, like Jesus and me, like Jesus became this, um, this companion, this extension of God that was um, extremely close and loving. Like this is, this is a kind of, you know, my mother's Jesus, the Jesus that never left you, the Jesus that was there for you, you know, the Jesus that, you know, is a lawyer in the courtroom and a doctor and, you know, in, you know, the sick room and all of that. And so that's kind of the Jesus that I grew up with. It's interesting though, I used to write letters as a kid. I'm a writer, I'm a poet, and everything was through writing because I was super quiet and that's all I knew how to do was write. And I would always write them to God. I would never write to Jesus, poor Jesus. He never received a letter from me. Um, I would always write, to God. <laughs> always write to God. But um, now I would probably say Jesus is still that companion, still that person. But um, as God manifested in the flesh, the ultimate teacher of humanity, what it what it's like to be with another person to be in community um how it is that we fight for justice how it is that we struggle to love our enemies how it is that we are always messing up the lines of inclusion and exclusion um jesus's life and ministry teaches us practices and ways of being and knowing together that will always be subversive because they will always be against the powers, right? Um, and I love how Jesus never makes it easy, <laughs> easy for us. Um, and because it isn't easy, he says he sends a comforter, right? And so I think in that way, Jesus reminds us that, you know, we have an example and that example is God in the flesh coming to say, hey, let me, let me get down in here and let me show you how it's done. I asked that question in part because uh, one of my mentors is a theologian named John Cobb, and he's close to you. He's in, he's in Claremont. And okay. I was 95 years old, but he's recently written, written books uh, about Jesus as Abba. Mm. And, and John is, is very, very interested in feeling God's presence as, as an eternal companion, uh, one who shares in our suffering shares in our, our joys, and also beckons us and challenges us, but a living presence. And as John uses the word Abba, I wonder if that's how sometimes you use the word Jesus, uh, as a companion, uh, not simply someone who lived a long time ago, although that, but someone actually present uh, here and now. Um, yes. Would that be the case? Yes, that is the case. I am, you know, I am quick to, to understand and to know that the, you know, the calling of uh, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. um, acknowledging, you know, 
the works of the Trinity and all of that. But I think that there's something special and unique about calling on the name of Jesus, about mm-hmm. recognizing Jesus as that companion, both fully, you know, fully God and like fully present with us, fully taking on um, and walking with us through, like you said, our joys and our sufferings, but also fully human and and fully human in the sense that like there is this uh, reverb resonance mm. of um, that permeates the cloud of witnesses, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's these ways in which I can call on Jesus, both as a witness, you know, and, and an ancestor and a person that has literally lived in this space before me that has tried, you know, that has navigated the very things that I am trying to navigate, but also recognizing that he is still fully God as well. And so what does that mean that he steps into that space with me and in that, you know, in my calling out, in my seeking, in my wrestling, um, he still occupies both spaces with mm. me mm-hmm. on the day, you know? Mm. That, that's really beautiful. And so as you were uh, growing up and going to church a little later, I know that poetry played a tremendous role in your life, still does. Yes. And I'm imagining music the same. Uh, so would you say a word about the role both of poetry and music? And if you want to really focus on poetry, that's fine. But yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear both sides if, if you could say a word about either. Yeah, okay. I mean, music is, you know, we a lot of people say music is poetry set to, you know, in, with instruments or what have you. Um, if you can hear that, that is my super fancy coffee maker turning off by itself because it's so fancy. Um <laughs> But I think that, you know, music is so much more than than that. If music was only poetry set to, you know, you know, rhythms and, you know, sounds, then classical music or instrumental music wouldn't move us as much as it did. Right. So music is definitely more. Poetry has always been um, my first love. It was the first way um, I learned how to express myself. I started writing in the fifth grade. Like I said, I was a very quiet child. I was a Jane Brady and the Brady Bunch, for those of you who remember what that means. I was a middle girl of six and very quiet, kept to myself, read a lot of books. Um, I just didn't know how to, I knew I was different. My family, like, you know, extroverted and like, you know, they all were um, lyricists. So um, they did hip hop. So they rapped um, all of my siblings before me. And I, you know, was the kind of quiet kind of, you know, not off kid. I love being weird. So I was a weird kid. And I, and in trying to learn who I was and how I expressed myself, poetry became that vehicle because I did have all of these deep questions. Um, I remember most of the first poem I wrote in the fifth grade. And it was called Tears of Our People. And it was wrestling about what the rain meant. And I think the last line was, it's the tears of our people, both dead and alive. Mm. That was me at fifth grade, you know? So I'm obviously I'm not, (laughs) but I always, I used to tell people a lot, writing was my first language because it was the only way I knew I got an argument 
we are not having a conversation. You were getting a letter. And so my poetry really came out of that. And so when I write, I write for me first. It's really hard for somebody to say, hey, can you write me a poem? And I'm like, ah, mm-hmm. don't necessarily do that. I don't sit down intentionally to write poetry. Um, a lot of the poems I wrote came out of me trying to, um, as Hamilton says, write my way out of something. And I looked down and it's a poem. Um, one of the poems that I think fits here is, is I remember I wrote a piece for a creative preaching class in my master's program, I'm an MDiv. And the professor wanted us to answer the question, who is God? And so I wrote this poem called, Who is God? And it was literally me writing out who I thought God was at different points of my life. So at age five, he's, you know, the best answer for a Sunday school, right? At age this, he was this. At age this, he was this. And it just kind of begin to like pan out and like show like the different iterations that I thought was God and the different ways that I kind of learned and knew and came into the revelation of who God was and who God wasn't um, as I grew into, you know, an adult, as I became more of myself. I got to be on that assignment, but you know, it got published. So. <laughs> you remember any of that poem? Uh, I can actually pull it up while I'm talking to you. Let me see if it's actually on the blog. There's quite a bit of poetry actually on my blog, but it may not be there. Let, give me two seconds and I can actually pull that up. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was one of the spaces that I... Um, learned to express myself, that I learned to, um, here we go. All right, here is the Who is God poem. At age five, he is the best answer for Sunday school questions. At age eight, he is the person you give your life to. Although the lady called him Jesus, At age 13, he is the only one who will listen to what you have to say. At age 16, he is the last word you use when cursing and the first name you call on when you're about to get into trouble. At age 18, he is the voice that consoles a broken heart. At age 20, he is the grace that gives you room to forgive yourself. From 22 to 25, he becomes the reason for your hatred the basis on which you claim your judgment and the source of your pride. But at 26, you realize he was none of those things. And you wonder if you ever really knew him at all. At 28, you set out on a journey to find him, like a child obsessed with capturing their parent's shadow. And at 30, you realize that the sun is east, the day is new, and he was right beside you all along. And his shadow constantly propelling you forward into newness. He is the mystery of your life simply because he is the only thing that makes sense. He is your foundation. Whether recently rediscovered or newly found, I cannot say, but he is the only support strong enough for your ambitiously ignorant and sightfully blinded steps that you carelessly choose to take. And although there will be many names that you will call him, 
and the many years you will continue to discover he is and always will be God. I hope it's all right if I give you an A plus. Um, Yay, I will take that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. And you know, uh, it, it makes me think of, of, of two things. Um, it, you, you know, you may or may not know that in process theology, we speak of God as being in process with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling our feelings, that's the language we use. And then offering us fresh possibilities in light of the situation at hand. So God is both the deep empathy and uh, the source of creative transformation. Yeah. But our idea of God is also in process. And whatever spirituality is, it's a quest. Mm-hmm. It's a journey. And it changes through time. Yes. And one of the beautiful things about your poem for me is it so vividly speaks to that fact. Now you exhibit there a kind of freedom. My guess is you've always been kind of free. A little bit. But, but you <laughs> exhibit a freedom to um, say out loud, you know, I have changed. I am changing. Mm-hmm. I am in process. Somewhere in that journey, um, you discovered a, a field called theopoetics. I did. And I think your poem is theopoetry. Um, pure and simple, but you may not have thought of it as theopoetics at that time. I don't know, but tell us the story about your discovery of theopoetics, if you will. You know, it's interesting. uh, What's in a name? What's in a word? You know, I discovered theopoetics through Patrick Reyes. God bless Patrick Reyes. I was a FTE doctoral fellow, and I wanted to find more scholars of color in the field of religion and the arts. And I did not know. I was like, I am not a unicorn. There are others that exist. I need to find them. I will find them. And I met Patrick at this um, FTE event and I just asked him, I said, I'm looking for people in my field, scholars of color. And he said, well, what's your field? And I said, religion and the arts. And he says, well, that's my field. And I was like, you do exist. So he uh, came to Los Angeles and we sat down for coffee and we just had this really great conversation. He's like, tell me what you're thinking. And I just kind of, I don't even remember what I said. I was just like, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, have you heard of, you know, Theopoetics? And I was like, no, I've never heard of that. And he was like, this is, this is where a lot of um, scholars of color are, are merging towards right now. Um, and there's this organization and you should check it out. And I want to introduce you to Khaled and da, 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 da. And so um, he sends an email out, uh, you know, warm handoff, warm digital handoff. And Khaled and I spoke for a good portion. I remember that conversation because- oh, Tell I, us who Khaled is real quick. Khaled, so Khaled Keith Perry is um, the other co-executive director of art, religion, and culture um, has been, you know, such a pillar in the field of theopoetics, what wrote uh, Way to Water, which is a theopoetics primer. So if anybody is interested in knowing what theopoetics is, read that book. It will give you such a good kind of foundation. Um, And has just been one of the people of our generation that has been, you know, doing the theopoetics work, getting it out, um, letting people know about it, teaching about it, writing about it, gathering people. And so he was the go-to person. So um, Patrick introduced me to him. And I remember we had a conversation because I was in LA 
at a march and we're getting ready to, to go on the march. And he called, we have this conversation while I'm in this church um, with these um, scholars and activists and spiritual leaders from all walks of life. And we're getting ready to go march together. And I'm on this call with him about theopoetics. And what's really interesting about that is I went back to my application for that FTE cohort for some reason, I can't even remember. And I reread what I wrote. And there was a portion in that that said, we need something different. We need something like a theopoetics. I used the word and I didn't even realize that I was saying that. And it just was this sense of confirmation mm-hmm. that that was the space that I was supposed to be in and that um, I was trying to work through the very concept of theopoetics without even realizing that it was a field, that it was an official word. Um, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote it, but maybe it was spiritually, you know, inspired. <laughs> so what, um, I mean, I can hear you, you're, you're so interested in theology and you are a poet and so interested in poetry. So it must've been a marriage, uh, a discovery that there's actually a field which marries those two sides of your life. Um, but what did it feel like to you to discover that? And, and how did your own understanding of theopoetics change uh, over the years or, or is what you first discovered, how you think of it now? Hmm, it's a very good question. I think when I first discovered it, it was a sense of like, for me, um, anchored in community. I wanted to find my people. That was my first um, introduction. That was my first kind of quest. Um, And in that regard, it felt like home. It felt very much like finding like minds and people who are thinking about the same things. And so it allowed me to be able to go, I'm not crazy. These are things, I'm not just making this up. Um, But I think what really drew me to Theopoetics was the sense that like, God is not a logical system. Um, I felt, Theopoetics for me was was the feeling that I had when I discovered, um, when I took an Old Testament course and I discovered that, you know, Moses didn't write the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, right? Like the Bible wasn't written by somebody sitting there going, what God, okay, no, no, what, no, huh? Okay, oh yeah, what, what happened, huh? As I begin to like learn more and more about the story and the traditions that were passed down about how the gospels were oral tradition um, of a persecuted community before they were written about all of those things, like what caused many people to go into this sense of deconstruction got me really excited. <laughs> Cause I'm like, so these are stories that people told that have been carried for generations with histories attached oh man, that's super fascinating that, you know, I'm inheriting that and not this, you know, divinely inspired book that you can't argue with, that you can't engage with, you can't enter into it. There's not a world attached to it. Um, So that story and that complexity and like that breath was what I was looking for, even in theology. Um, And I think theopoetics creates that space. I'm also, like you said, in, in regards to like changing and, and evolving and adapting, um, those are things that resonate with me deeply. And so 
that also makes it a little shaky for me to think about God simply in a logical system. Um, I understand why we think, you know, these lines and these logistics and these, you know, hierarchies protect us because they help. There are something that we can control. Um, God was never meant to be controlled. Like if God is God, then, you know, if God created everything in the whole world, why then do we instantly limit ourselves when we talk about them? You know, and it just, the poetics gave, uh, it confirmed the breath that I was looking for, that I needed to take. It confirmed the, um, the breakdown for me to lean into, you know, the novels and to see the truth. It made truth not just facts and checklists and all of these different things. Um, it made it something that I can convey that I can never really kind of touch. It's like that itch that you can never really kind of like get to, but part of it is like trying to scratch a little bit of it and that relief, right? Like it made God much more interesting because it made God bigger than any system or any idea that I could ever possibly have. And so that's why I, in, in the poem, I say, it's like a child obsessed with their parent's shadow. You know, you're constantly, you know, some people are terrified of shadows. You see little kids and they like finally discover their shadow and then they start screaming and like running and then they can never get away from it. But I'm like the person that's like, ooh, and I'm trying to like capture it. And I end up going on this journey trying to capture this shadow that I can never really fully grasp, but there, it, it is taking me somewhere. It's leading me somewhere. And it's the, um, the elusiveness is not um, negative. It is like a, a, a calling, a beckoning, I think you said earlier. And so I think that that's kind of like where I'm at. Where I'm at now with Theopoetics, it's, Obviously, I'm in a really interesting place because now I'm thinking about it all the time because of my dissertation. But I'm just thinking about how it as a field can help us to understand the relationship between religion, the arts, culture, spirituality, all of these different things. Um, how it creates uh, certain sensibilities. I call it articulating sensibilities. Like that's all we really kind of get, right? Um, and what does that mean that we can try to capture a sensibility, but like a metaphor, the moment it is birth, it starts to break down and be okay with that. Um, so it's kind of like a disposition rather than a, a, a rigid field that you're kind of leading. It's teaching us certain practices and certain ways of being that helps to prepare us um, as we are encountering one another, encountering the land in new ways, encountering God and the concept of the divine, they're dispositions that help, um, that lean toward a certain epistemology, a certain way of knowing um, that we never fully grasp, but have a lot of fun trying. Well, that, that makes so much sense to me. And I, um, I, I like process theology, but it's often troubled me that it was too systematic mm. um, and too much like a frame in, in which to place things and not sufficiently invitational as a, as a beckoning. So for myself, I think of process theology as a disposition, uh, as you do of theopoetics, a journey in and with the uncontrollable. But, but the uncontrollable is nurturing. There's a sense that one way or another, the uncontrollable is on the side of life. 
You may not know how, but I, cer I certainly hear that in, in what you're saying. Now, somewhere along the lines, you discovered Octavia Butler. And I discovered her through you and, and started reading her. And so, uh, but I'd like to hear you talk about her and what she meant to you and means to you and what lessons we can learn uh, from her with your help. Yeah, that's a crazy, well, not a super crazy story, I guess. Um, I read Octavia Butler years before my PhD program and I read Kindred, which is a very interesting take on time travel. Um, it's about a young black woman in the 70s who, um, I'm being next to her and without her consent gets pulled back in time into the antebellum South where she is tasked with saving herself through saving her ancestor. And in this case, her ancestor is a um, white male slave owner. And she's pulled back to different parts of his life and the complexities of that, um, that arise from that, those encounters. Read it, loved it, was like, I'm gonna read Octavia Butler and you know, life happens. And I finished my first year of my PhD program. I was burnt out, I took a break for the summer. And a friend of mine said, hey, there's this um, Octavia Butler exhibit at the Huntington, which is up the street from me. And they're like, here's two tickets. You and a friend just go since you're, you know, taking a break. I was only, I wasn't reading any academic stuff. I was only reading fiction. I was only, you know, watching Game of Thrones. That was my only assignment for the summer. I go to the exhibit and um, they have like different like books and like different, you know, displays, but they also had her journals. And I remember reading their journals through the displays and just being so inspired by, you know, her perseverance and what she would speak of. I am going to be a best-selling writer. I am going to do this. I am going to do that. All those things really inspired me. And I said, I need to read her again. And as I said that, there's this big poster for Parable of the Sower. And I said, I'll start there, <laughs> you know, randomly. Um, at the same time, I was trying to discern what I wanted to do for my dissertation. I knew it was about artists. Um, I knew it had to be about justice. And I, I was, the question I had is, what are the artists doing? How are they responding to the socioeconomic, racial, all of these different things that are happening in our world? And I was like, oh, that's a great question. I just need to find an artist. But I wasn't thinking about that when I read her. I was just like a great book to read. I read Parable of the Sower. And when I finished it, I just sat there and I said, what just happened? This why isn't everybody reading? Everybody in the world, we all need to be reading this. This is this could be us in 2024. Where is everyone? Why is nobody talking about this? Like this woman created this world that is so, that's too close. I've actually had friends who told me um, after I recommended to them, they had to put it down because it was too real for them. It was too close to where we are. And this young black woman is engaging and preaching and leading in her father's Baptist-led, you know, Baptist-orchestrated, you know, community. And she's like, this isn't it. I think there's something more. And begins to craft something so beautiful. And also kind of like take us through the trauma and the, you know, drama and all of the different things that are happening in the midst of creating this beautiful community. And so I was like, this is it, this is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a paper. <laughs> That's what I thought. I'm gonna write this for my methodology paper. And I go to AR, American Academy of Religion, which is um, 
one of the largest religious religion, you know, study of religion conferences in the world. And I go and I um, run into a Sean Crawley, who is an incredible scholar. And I saw him and I, I know he also engages in literature. And I was like, I'm looking for resources for, you know, Octavia Butler and da, 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 da. And him and his graciousness, because he was so tired that day, was like, um, I don't think there's anybody actually really, really engaging the religion in her work. And I was like, oh, you mean like this could be more of a paper? And he was like, hmm. And then introduced me to Octavia's Brood. Octavia's Brood is a um, short stories written by activists who are not writers, they're activists. Um, they write fiction in the vein of Octavia Butler about their issue. And this is just a way that they were carrying on her legacy. And I started to discover that so many activists, community organizers, people who were um, trying to build new worlds were solely or um, largely inspired by the work of Octavia Butler. And so I, through some you know, conversations with my, um, through some internet searches, decided that I was gonna focus on her for my dissertation. And then I emailed my advisor and told him this. And he said, this is an excellent idea. Did you know that the Huntington has all of her archives up the street that you have access to? I had no clue. I had no clue she was from Pasadena at the time. Um, it was just, it kind of fell into my lap really beautifully and scarily. Um, and so I've been journeying with her ever since and learning from her ever since. The beginning of 2020, I posted a tweet that said, this is like January, so this is before any of the pandemic stuff really hit. And I said, your required reading for this year is Octavia Butler Parable Series. Just read it. I had no clue what we were really, really heading into. And you know, once we kind of got into it, I was like, oh, I was more right than I thought. I didn't want to be more right than I thought because you know, of everything that's happening. And so I ended up writing a, um, a blog about um, five things Octavia Butler can teach us to get us through kind of like this year. And a lot of it comes from the, some people call it religion, some people call it a spirituality, um, the earth seed verses that she writes, which in the novel is um, what um, Lauren, the character, the main character is writing and developing as what we should be doing, that God is changed, that all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting thing is change. God is changed. And so it's this notion um, that humanity and the earth partner with God in, in, in developing creation. And so it's this sense of um, not worshiping God, but partnering with God in life. And so the five things I have here is, you know, that change is inevitable, right? We learn that, you know, in, in, this, in this way that, that Octavia and through Lauren is saying that, you know, God has changed, that the concept of change is inevitable. Everyone will go through change. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, your age, any of that. You will go through change. And so you have to learn to be adaptable. Um, I also think you have to learn how to grieve because you can't have change without loss. Um, and so I've been really thinking about grief a lot in the last few years. And so I have a few poems about 
how to grieve because I'm so bad at it, right? Um, secondly is that it's not about you. That even, you know, for the sake of self-preservation, and I know everyone is in this survival mode right now, still we're connected. So the things that you do is inevitably connected to community. And so even understandably in your own act for trying to, you know, preserve and protect yourself, it will affect the people around you. So you have to consider it because that's another thing that is pretty much inevitable. Change is inevitable. And the fact that you're connected to community, the land, like everything around you is inevitable. And so you have to consider that. Um, one of the one of my favorite verses that she has is that kindness eases change. And it's the sense that like the sense of being kind to one another, the concept of, you know, understanding that people are going through things that you on one hand could probably resonate with because you're human. And on the other hand, you can never fully understand because it's not your particular experience. That the one thing that you can do is to be kind to people in their space. It doesn't mean to, you know, be passive. It doesn't mean um, to not speak out about injustice. It means um, to understand that individuals are going through things and to have sympathy and empathy as you navigate those spaces. Um, can I, this is a longer verse, but it is my favorite. Is it okay if I read it? Please do, please okay. do. This one is, is on um, partnership is life. It says, partnership is giving, taking, learning, teaching, offering the greatest possible benefit while doing the least possible harm. Partnership is mutualistic symbiosis. Partnership is life. Any entity, any process that cannot or should not be resisted or avoided must somehow be partnered. Partner one another. Partner diverse communities. Partner life. Partner any world that is your home. Partner God. Only in partnership can we thrive, grow, change. Only in partnership can we live. And it's this notion of anything, this is my favorite, any entity, any process that cannot or should not be resisted or avoided must be partnered. And I think part of what we're going through right now is we don't know how to discern that. We lack the discernment of what should be resisted or avoided, and we partner things that should be avoided. And this goes back to kindness is change. This goes back to it's not about you. Um, we partner things for our own self-preservation. We partner things for our own sense of control and understanding that we forget, one, that you know, all of the things that we do are connected to community. We forget the implications of our partnership. We forget the implications um, of what we pick and choose for our own self-preservation. Any self-preservation that results in the death of the lives of other people um, and injustices toward other people should be avoided and resisted because the real preservation is in partnership. The real preservation is in kindness and caring for one another. And so I just, just in teaching us that there's so much more than the divisions that we have, there's so much more um, than the ways that we 
pit against one another because we're trying to protect an ideology and someone over here is trying to protect an ideology. And then there's all of the people um, who have been stripped of power because of hierarchy. And now they have to suffer the consequences of either, right? Um, because we're not paying attention to one another. We're not rightly discerning what needs to be resisted and what needs to be partnered. Um, and then the last one, and I'll read it, and it's really great, it's that we can do the impossible. And uh, it says here, we can, each of us, do the impossible as long as we can convince ourselves that it has been done before. And this is, you know, not a Christian verse, but it resonates with the tradition that I've been handed from my mom because when she thinks about going into difficult situations or things, it's like, you know, it's the psalmist. Well, God, you did this and you delivered them. And, you know, Jesus, you rose from, you know, death. So if you've overcome, if this has been done before, we can do the impossible if we rightly partner, if we're kind to one another, if we learn adaptability, um, if we understand what needs to be resisted and avoided. Um, Right. So if we understand all of these different things, we can do the impossible. We can create a space that is full of life, um, that understands, you know, our connection with the land and each other. We can partner with God in that way. And so it's just been um, such a learning experience to learn from her in that and to still learn. There's still books that I'm reading that I'm like, wow, the depth of knowledge and truth. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, theopoetics and, and how that story kind of like excited me. And I didn't have that, like, it wasn't like the same type of deconstruction because there's so much truth here in this fiction, right? There's so much truth there. And um, there's no system, right? There's no systematics. There's so much truth. And there's, there are ways that help us stay in those dispositions we talked about earlier, that we can learn certain practices that allow us to be adaptable and kind and um, persistent and partners. Um, there are practices that help us lean into those moments. So when we get into something like a 2020, um, they become our rituals. Well, I think, um, I hope that you render those five points into a book, either of theopoetics or of pure poetry, because we, we have so much to learn from all of that so much. And you don't need process theology. You're fine. <laughs> but, but, but I must say that when you articulated the five points, they all resonated uh, so deeply mm -hmm. with what I understand a process theology to be about. Um, community, the interconnectedness, the uh, inevitability of change, the distinction between positive change and, and resistance. Mm -hmm. We have to resist some things. Um, evil is real. Mm -hmm. uh, the primacy of kindness. It's not all about us. And imagining the impossible is, is so interesting. Uh, I'm interested in Afrofuturism myself and, and imagining the present and the past from the point of view of a hoped-for future. Um, it's a kind of eschatological imagination that I think is so important today. 
Uh, in the world of process thought, we, we speak of the hoped for future as um, just, sustainable, and joyful communities mm. that are good for people and the earth and animals uh, with no one left behind. And not to say we love, live up to that, but that's what we seek. And that's what we think we're beckoned toward mm. by the, the great uncontrollable. Mm. The great uncontrollable. We, um, sometimes we use a fancy name for it. We call it ecological civilization. Um, ecology doesn't just mean environment. It means the whole of the connectedness. People, mm. land, animals, plants, air, water, fire. So you can understand how so much of what you say uh, resonates very deeply. Um, where are you headed? Do you know? <laughs> do, do you care? <laughs> I mean, you know, it may be it's day by day, moment by moment, and don't need to worry to think so much about my future, but you obviously have so much to share. Um, how's it going to happen? Do you have a picture of yourself five years from now, 10 years from now? I used to. Um, now I just have sensibilities. I think that um, for me, part of the planning of where I want to go and the dreams that I have, I still have them. They're still written down. Um, I hold them with open hands because I realize that it works out better in that way. <laughs> you know, uh -huh, uh -huh. my imagination right now is, is not what it's going to be in 5, 10, 15 years from now. And so I wouldn't want to tie myself to the imagination of a um, five-year younger me, right? But I think that there are certain things that I, you know, I want to do and spaces that I want to enter into and, and things that I'm working on and those things, because they take time, right? They are working on them now, but they will take five, you know, a few years to get to that point. Um, I think for financial and social economic reasons, I have goals. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I need to eat and keep a roof over my head and all those different things. I would love to, um, I see myself as bivocational or in a space that is that is dynamic. Everybody's talking about, you know, the death of tenure track and all these different things. And I just, um, I've decided to not worry myself with those things. Um, the work that I do, the work that I do at ARC is the work I will continue to do no matter where I am. The work that I do in honoring artists and their voices and what they teach us is the work that I will do no matter where I am. Mm -hmm. um, the work of trying to think about new worlds and what does it mean to partner and what does it mean to resist is the work that I will do in whatever space. Um, I often say to people that one of the things I want to do is to create spaces for people to reimagine. Mm. And that is something that I will always do. And so I think that in that sense, there's direction, um, but it's not rigid. I don't... Um, I didn't expect Octavia Butler to fall into my lap, as it were. But I think if I had been really rigid with my dissertation question, I wouldn't be here at this point. And so holding things with open hands um, and knowing myself, like practicing those sensibilities, right? Creating that disposition. So then I will have the discernment to be able to know what to resist and what to partner with.
Mm-hmm. But that comes with certain practices, that comes with certain um, ways of being, um, that comes from certain rituals, right? And that comes from a certain grounding in um, histories and stories and families that allow me to know, oh, you're going a little too far. That's not, that's not really who you are. Um, it could be who you're becoming, but there's something about it you're not, either not ready for yet or it's not you. It's a dance. And so I'm trying to lean into that a lot more and to listen to people who have gone before me. As it relates to process, one of the people who um, I love is the work of Monica Coleman. Mm-hmm. Um, Monica Coleman has been engaging in the work of Octavia Butler for a long time, especially mm-hmm. from the concept of processiology, her text making a way out of no way, um, hits this dead on, especially in the final chapter where she talks about um, her seed. She's had some incredible, um, her and Dr. Taranabe do, forgive me if I mispronounce the name, um, have had some really great um, online um, seminars called Octavia Tried to Tell Us that kind of gets into a lot of what I talk about in my blog. And so there's just some amazing um Black women in particular that is doing some really great work that I'm leading into. Um, Adrian Marie Brown. Um, I'm not sure if she's not a, a theologian as it were, but her work, especially in um, emergent strategy and pleasure activism, is really incredible. And her concept of shaping and biomimicry and all these different things that she's learning from her mentors are greatly shaped by the concept of um, shaping God and change um, from Octavia. And so there's some really great um, thinkers and community organizers that I'm kind of leaning into that help me develop those rituals and processes so that I have the proper discernment and I have a strong intuition to lean into, right? Um, To listen to to, to the spirit of God, which is my tradition, right? To listen to community, to listen to the ancestors in the cloud of witnesses. So um, a direction I have some particulars, uh, but I hold them close. So, you know, I like to say about things when, you know, they're actually happening, (laughs) but a direction, definitely. Great, great. And uh, I think what you say about ritual and being grounded makes so much sense. Um, uh, For the sake of discernment and for the sake of uh, a centered yet creative life, uh, a life with open hands to, to use your metaphor, uh, how to walk through life with with open hands, and yet that you're not um, torn apart by the hurricanes or whatever. So yeah, it, it all makes so much sense. This has been great to to be with you, yeah. and um, it's very inspirational. It will be to everybody that gets to listen to this. So I'll just say a big, big, big thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This has been super great. Yeah, for us too. Thank you. You're welcome. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.